Welcome back to Weird Comics History. My name is Reggie. My name is Chris. And uh, we come to you through the WeirdScienceDCComics.com podcast feed. Uh, try to do it every two weeks. I apologize. We have missed two weeks in a row again. Uh, Chris and I, we kind of rearranged our schedule here where we're going to have uh, this show alternating with Cosmic Treadmill every other Sunday. Um, for those that don't know, Cosmic Treadmill is when we read a comic book picked by listeners uh, and act out some of the parts. So, yes. um, so you'll get Weird Comics History this Sunday, and then you'll get another one in two weeks, and we're going to keep going like that, and hopefully that'll get us on a more regular schedule because I... Reggie, personally, have a lot of problems keeping to it otherwise. <laughs> um, you can get this uh, podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher, and you can broadcast it via a loudspeaker from a custom van. With airbrush on the side. Whatever works, that would be preferable, you know, with a love a love shack inside. That's how we like to see it. And it's <laughs> and very a wizard on the outside. It's very uh, good that we're talking about that because we are moving into the mid mid seventies into the eighties of underground comics this uh, episode. But first, we'll do a little recap uh, about underground comics, uh, pornographic comics known as Tijuana Bibles. They were printed and surreptitiously distributed from the nineteen twenties to the early nineteen sixties in places like pool halls and uh, under the counter at newsstands and you had to know a guy who knew a guy. A uh, gentleman named Harvey Kurtzman, his writing and page layout would influence dozens of independently produced zines throughout the 1950s and 60s. He worked in the original Mad comic book, eventually uh, went on to do a magazine called Trump for Hugh Hefner of Playboy, then he did Humbug, and then he did one called Help, and we'll reference some of that in this episode. Uh, another gentleman named Robert Crumb, a famous artist of the underground scene, he took LSD and later drew Zap Comics number one, which went on sale in 1968, and this created the underground comics explosion where hundreds of titles were sold on college campuses and through head shops, and we went through a sliver of them last episode, and I think we rattled off like 30. Mm -hmm. uh, there were so many of these comics out there. But then new obscenity rulings in the 1970s made carrying these comics untenable to the already scrutinized head shops. And this pretty much spelled the demise of underground comics. And that brings us to a new person. Yes, we're going to talk about Aileen Kaminsky Crumb. Uh, she was born Aileen Ricky Goldsmith on August 1st, 1948 in Long Beach, Long Island. Her father was 23. Her mother was 19 when she was born. Uh, they lived in Rockaway, Queens until she was about four, and then moved to Woodmere, where she stayed until college. She's got a brother and four, uh, who's four years youngest. Couldn't even younger. I didn't find his name, but he, he's out there somewhere. He's somewhere floating around. <laughs> <laughs> her, fa her father was a failed businessman, and uh, her mother was a homemaker who went to work uh, when Aileen turned 10. Uh, used the money from her, her, her father to. Uh, this is the father who did this, correct? Yep. The yep. father he used uh, he used money from his own father to live beyond his means, which uh, created a, quite a bit of strife at the house. Yeah. Uh, when she turned eight, she took painting lessons from a Pratt Institute student, and uh, she would continue to paint until she was fourteen. And then she found out she dug boys. Which happens uh, that happens to uh, us in comics world too, right? You find that a lot of yes. kids they their comics tend to go from like nine to 14, there's a little break in the action. A little low, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, blame, you blame it on stuff like the stories not being that interesting. Right, but we, we, know what, we know what really <laughs> No, because we, we don't stop buying the back issues a few years later. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> she attended Lawrence High School, which combined many students from the Five Towns District, uh, which Woodmere was part of. Um, this is the first time she would see uh, black and Italian students, which... Uh, 
I guess she was a little bit sheltered growing up. Yeah. Uh, now she says she was stabbed with a state uh, with a safety pin on her first day by a black girl. Weird. Um, yeah. She was on an academic track while the uh, the black kids were on a vocational track at school. So she really didn't interact with all that many new people during her entire time there. Uh, of interest, she did uh, attend high school with Peggy Lipton, who uh, was on the Mod Squad, and I think she played the uh, waitress on Twin Peaks. Yep. Uh, she attended uh, SUNY at uh, New Pulse briefly at high school. She dropped out and moved to the Lower East Side on 3rd Street in the first year. Uh, she left before Thanksgiving break. Uh, she actually had gotten pregnant her first week at New Pulse and ran away uh, by climbing out of her dorm room window for some reason or another. <laughs> uh, she apparently had the child. I mean, we're going to get into some sketchy date yeah, lineup pretty soon here. Sort of weird, but I did the best yeah. I could here. <laughs> Well, I, 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 and I'm pretty sure uh, it might be her lapsed memory that we're uh, oh, yeah. we're paying for here. Yeah. Um, so uh, she apparently had the child and did so without her mother's knowledge. Uh, her father would come for a surprise visit, I'm guessing just before she gave birth, and told her never to tell her mother. Yeah. Uh, she wound up giving the baby to a Jewish adoption agency. Uh, her father would die uh, a couple months later. She was 19 years old. And uh, Aileen's mother uh, remarries a year later, uh, so Aileen never went back to that Woodmere house again. Um, she went to art school at Cooper Union, uh, spent nights working on Wall Street uh, in a uh, clerical position. So, you know, this is someone who really had a mid-20th century sheltered, typical, life. you know, American yes. <laughs> suburban life. That, that's really what we're seeing here. She didn't even see a black or Italian, like an, an Italian is another... Race altogether, or something. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, goodness yeah. gracious, an Italian. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, this this is the way America was, and she was definitely a total product of that. And and I think um, her story is is indicative of a lot of people's stories of the time, and and what they were rebelling against was this precise sort of upbringing, not dissimilar really to Crumb or to uh, other people we've talked about in in other ways. But anyway, life goes on. She's in Manhattan now, and Aileen met Carl Kaminsky, a dope peddler, doing a year of probation in New York. When it was done, he wanted to move back to Tucson, Arizona. Aileen's mom wanted to move with her into a new condo, so Aileen said, nope, and uh, headed right out, uh -uh. went west right away. Now, Carl was not the ideal husband. He did a lot of horrible things that I'm sure Chris and I have never done, like leave dirty laundry in the living room. That's uh, disgusting. One thing he did do that I don't think we have done, though, is used to fling eggs at the wall of Aileen broke the yolk. Uh, uh, no, I, I do the cooking, so uh, no, yeah. I, I don't. <laughs> if you break, you have to fling, you have to fling the, your own eggs if you break your own yolk. You know, you. I, I usually <laughs> just plunge my face in, into the pan. There you so. go, a little <laughs> little egg sapuco. Yeah, a little self-flagellation. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> she lived out there in Tucson though, with Carl, his father, and two brothers. Aileen spent three years with Carl, and she took a lot of peyote and other drugs, and she attended art school. And actually, she really enjoyed her time out there. Described it as basically taking a lot of psychedelic drugs and going out into the desert with guns, which is a beautiful thing, I guess. If uh, it's, it's a pastime in Arizona. That's right. And I, I believe now it's a sport, right? You have teams, <laughs> and that's uh, get on the junior varsity psychedelics team. Yep, so, shirts and skins. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but, of course, like everyone at that time that was going to be involved in uh, comics, she had to move to San Francisco in 1971 with Carl, who was connecting with her brother for a drug deal of some kind. Uh, Aileen was already interested by then in the underground comic scene, and here's another one where the timeline kind of shifts, but she 
definitely was moved by a comic called Binky Brown Meets the Holy Virgin Mary by Justin Green. Uh, she was inspired by its autobiographical content, and that is considered by some to be the first truly autobiographical underground comic of its type. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about this shift in autobiographical content because it's important for uh, what, how underground comics will proceed after they've uh, stopped being carried in head shops. Now, following the success of Zap Comics number one, the comics immediately after that, they were basically ripped off the same thing Crumb had done, which is kind of a stream of consciousness, psychedelics, uh, kind of a loose satire on modern... Uh, you know, mainstream society, but, you know, really just off-the-wall wacky stuff, not not really trying to be very, uh, you know, navel-gazing. Uh, Justin Green, though, he's acknowledged as kicking off that first one, um, and it's, but it is kind of hard to pin down the first time someone did something like that. Um, after that, this really did, it got a ball rolling where that became sort of the flavor of underground comics was to be autobiographical, uh, you know, exposing your soul, exposing your life was a big deal in comics. It was no longer just about Mr. Natural and smoking dope, although there was plenty of that too. I don't want to take away from it. Uh, Kim Deach and Spain Rodriguez also produced some autobiographical stories, but it was a guy named Harvey Picard that we're going to talk about in pretty good length later on, he began a comic called American Splendor. Uh, this was a comic mainly about his own life's mundanity in 1976, but we'll get there and really get into this comic because this became the vanguard of this genre of autobiographical comics. Uh, and somehow in the mid-1970s, it just became synonymous, like an underground comics. And uh, again, we're going to get to a, un, the whole nature of the comics being underground changes, but it sort of becomes... You know, it comes to define what an autobiographical comic is, usually black and white, maybe independently produced, but uh, would have a huge impact on, on this scene to come. And we are going to talk about that. But first, we're going to go back to Aileen. Yes, uh, Aileen, uh, she fell, when we left her, she was moving to San Francisco. And uh, she fell in right away with the underground comics community. Uh, by her own accord, there was a, a lot of whoopee going around. Uh, <laughs> she'd be, she would become friendly with uh, Trina Robbins, who was putting out the first issue of her own comic called Women's Comics, which is W-I-M-M-E-N, uh, and comics with an X. But that would change, um, that would change later, as we talked about yesterday, yes. last episode, for whatever reason. And, Yes, and uh, they did this together in uh, 1972, or she was putting it together in 1972. We're also going to meet uh, Diane Newman, who's the creator of the underground comics character Dee Dee Glitz. Uh, she had just separated from her husband and was converging on San Francisco from New York, uh, right as uh, this was going down. Uh, Aileen edited and contributed to a comic called El Perfecto in 1973 that uh, this would support Timothy Leary's legal defense fund. Uh, now, Leary was a psychologist who advocated for controlled use of psych psychedelic drugs for therapeutic purposes. Uh, he'd be responsible for the Concord Prison Experiment, which sought to lower recidiv recidivism yep. <laughs> for, among parolees. And it had, um, some, had some interesting success, too, didn't it? Wasn't it? Uh, yeah. It did, but uh, not enough to uh, actually push anything through. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've actually done a bit of reading about him uh, for uh, for academic reasons. Yeah. And uh, it's they did a lot of uh, a lot of weird uh, experiments in prisons uh, in the middle of the 20th century. It's uh, 
very fascinating <laughs> subject. Wow. Um, uh, Eileen was uh, she was already dating Robin Crumb at this point. Uh, he and Dana, uh, who he'd been married for, uh, who he's been married to, they had uh, something of an open marriage. Now, this, um, I, I got to say before you get into this, was really tough to pick apart, and 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 even when I talked about. You know, she made a lot of whoopee. That was me glossing over this unbelievably complicated entanglement of yes. these people just screwing around with each other. They kind of went in and around Robin. So, you know, we're going to do the best we can to sort of explain the odd situation that this was. But <laughs> if it sounds weird, it... It is. it is. It is weird. <laughs> now, uh, we'd be remiss to say that it, it was difficult to determine how open it was or whether Robert and Dana were just cheating on one another and not being terribly secretive or creative about it. Yeah. Um, to illustrate, uh, Dana was dating a uh, fellow named Ken Weaver, who was the uh, founding member of a, a, rock, a hippie rock band called The Fugs. And uh, he was living with Aileen, and uh, eventually they moved to some property in Mendocino, uh, owned by Robert, and lived in trailers. So Aileen and Robert got involved during his commune period. So yeah, this was a this was a bit complicated. It's 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 like so weird. Like you know, so was that? Did did they know that Dana was moving to be with a guy? She with being with a dude? Yeah. Yeah, like and it was so unclear. I it's really weird to know. I, I guess you have to get them all in a room and say like, what happened? But was, yeah, <laughs> the best it's, it's easy to it's easy to reflect on it now, but uh, at yeah. the time, who knows? Um, now and at the same time, Robin had several girlfriends for a fact. Yeah, we know that for uh, sure. So yeah. yeah. A lot of hanky-panky happening. This was the free love era, people, so it was all right. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, give give off and give always or something. Um, Diane also began dating uh, Bill Griffith during this time. Uh, they're, they're, married, they're married now. There's Diane Newman again. Yeah. Uh, at least per last episode. Yeah, uh, yeah. We we mentioned a lot. Bill Bill Griffith is the guy that would go on to do Zippy the Pinhead, but he was yeah. he loomed big in the scene at this time. Certainly, and uh, so Diane and Aileen were uh, contributors to uh, Robin's women's comics issues number two and three, but a story of Aileen's was rejected either because the work's uh, consciousness hadn't raised, or uh, or because there were just too many stories by Jewish girls in the issue, depending on who you ask. Yeah, literally in in two interviews, that was the. Two different people. That was their answer. So I don't know. But I mean, we've seen some of her work, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We, we can go. We can talk about that. We can talk about that. <laughs> it's uh, it's the kind of stuff that you'd see scrolled on like like on your traffic keeper. Yeah. I when think, you were in eighth grade. I think yeah, exactly. I think it's, it's it looks very. We we can call it folksy. I would say, but uh, sure. definitely not. Um, of the caliber of a lot of the artwork that was good. And, and this is not everyone in the underground comic scene. You know, Robert Crumb is a uniquely talented oh God. fellow. Yes. Uh, not everyone is as talented as that, and, we, and no one expected them to be. And there's definitely a mm. lot of experimental art. But uh, this is some opinion, but Aileen's art sort of goes beyond <clears throat> experimental. It's just not very great. But anyway, you know, I mean, like, uh, I. Bless her, she draws for a she, living. So she tried, yeah. There she, you go. she tries. <laughs> she continues to do so. Yeah. Yeah, and I think a, a lot of it, uh, the experimental and more stylized art, kind of hid people's handicaps. Yeah. Where uh, I think she was trying to draw straight. The, the, um, this, and it kind of exacerbated them. Like it was really. Uh, yeah. Strange, you know. Like you know. Anyway, it's uh, <laughs> we can go on and on about it, but that that may be another reason why it didn't make it into the issue. Is what you're yes. implying, and I think you're you could be very right. <laughs> 
<laughs> now, uh, Trina Robbins and her staff, which is pretty much just a woman named Sharon Rudolph, uh, they became combative with uh, Aileen and Diane because, you know, and we're going to use a little bit of conjecture here because we have a lot of <laughs> different, lot different of accounts of this. around here, yeah. Uh, now, either their work was uh, too uh, self-depreciating and autobiographical, or that they were dating famous cartoonists in the underground comic scene, or Aileen specifically dating Robert Crumb, who was someone that Robbins... Uh, she was she was kind of outspoken uh, about a lot of his work because she, she viewed it as misogynistic, and yeah. I, I suppose some of it could have been well, if you took the satire out of it. She, you know, um, she definitely has her points, but yeah, she was, you know, to her credit or whatever it is, she was the first person to really make to to break rank and say, "Wait a second, yeah, let's you know this may not be how tongue in cheek is this." So, but whatever yeah, she it was, was, she definitely was, was did not like his stuff. Yeah, she was the lone voice <laughs> for a long time. Attention. You know, yeah. Now, also, it could be that the women in Alien and Diane's comics they were not viewed as, viewable as heroic by Trina's standards. Could have been just plain jealousy. <laughs> um, well, after issue three, uh, Aileen and Diane put out their own comic, which was called Twisted Sisters. Issue one uh, came out in 1976 by Last Gasp Press, who I think we're going to be talking about more next episode. Yeah. Um, and uh, that issue did not sell terribly well. So why? What I think, happened? I think uh, didn't uh, was it Larry? What's his face from Last Gasp said that he like used it to. Insulate his walls or something. Yeah, eventually, exactly. I think I think he eventually had so many unsold copies. Yeah, he was just shredding it, I guess, for firewood and insulation. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah, he, he, you know, he made some kind of quip about it, but it did it did not move when people definitely expected it to, and you know, wonder what happened. Well, as we discussed last episode, to go into more detail, pornographer Marvin Miller was arraigned for mail order pornography about Miller versus California, 1973. And Justice Warrenberger was just looking for this chance to crack down on porn. So they, uh, their new definition of obscenity, the United States Supreme Court said the community standard doctrine, which is that the local communities would have to define it themselves, which means could be anything, could be anything. now, you know, could now be uh, disallowable. So universities and head shops got very gun shy and stopped carrying, especially head shops who had other reasons not to to you know to want to avoid scrutiny. Yeah. Uh, you don't want to well, you don't want to invite. No, exactly. <laughs> Eyes. You, you yeah. don't want you don't want the cops in there taking away your comics and then see what else is going on. So they they stopped carrying underground comics to avoid this prosecution. But also, the tenor of underground comics had changed. It used to be, like I say, a celebration of psychedelia and a satire of the American dream. Uh, but then many comics, like Twisted Sisters, became very autobiographical. You know, th and there was also a change in this country. The hippie thing had kind of petered out, and, uh, you know, a lot of people had gotten burned out on those very drugs that inspired those psychedelic uh, drawings. So it, it was not the same uh, place in this country. You know, the Vietnam yeah. War was uh, going on, and people were not feeling so positive about life, I think, at this time. So the country in general was kind of tending towards a new conservatism, and this is not just politically, but also in lifestyle, uh, in our expression and, and yeah. in our lifestyle, exactly, you know what I mean? So, uh, you know, I think that looking inward and being autobiographical was all part of that tendency instead of, you know, uh, just showing a wacky cartoonish world at large. And once again, who... What do you think is going to affect uh, comics at this time? Always seems to show up right around now. 
That's that thing where like they're not available anywhere but in certain stores. Right? That's right. It almost sounds like an <laughs> underground distribution. We call it the, yes. the direct market. And we've said this before. We'll say it again. One day, folks, we are going to tackle this beast of a topic. Yes. Uh, we've already, you know, put out a skeleton outline and talked about ways we're going to do it. But this one's going to be a monster. But it, it 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 affects so much of comics from you know late '60s, early '70s up until well, to today. Yeah. This very second. So anyway, but you know, just to give you some. Brief stuff, uh, following the nebulous community standards, obscenity laws, and the rising cost of doing business, the main underground publishers were able to survive due to this shift towards the direct market. But first, let's talk about Bud Plant Incorporated. Uh, beautiful name for a business. Yes. Launched by the conveniently named Bud Plant in 1970, uh, Bud Plant Incorporated was a mail-order company which specialized in underground comics. Uh, Bud would buy and sell comics through these fanzines and would build quite a name for himself, leading to, in 1973, direct market pioneer Phil Suling. Uh, this is a guy we would be talking about in much more detail in the direct market episodes, but for now we'll just say he was a direct market pioneer. And uh, after he got the nationwide distribution rights to Marvel, DC, Warren, and Archie, uh, he offered Plant the entire West Coast region. Plant turned him down. He preferred to stay with the underground market. But he did expand his reach in the comics world. And in 1972, he started a retailer, Comics and Comics, so that's comics with a C and then comics with an X, with his housemate and conveniently named Robert Beerbohm. <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah. Uh, he, they hosted the first Bay Area Comics Convention, Berkeley Con, in 1973, and uh, he was involved in comics publishing sporadically from the late 60s to the mid-1980s. By 1988, Plant found himself dominating West Coast distribution almost in spite of his original intent. F uh, Phil Suling's own company, Seagate Distributors, and independent publisher-distributor Pacific Comics had both gone out of business. During the summer of 88, Bud Plant sold his distribution warehouses to our friend Steve Geppi from Diamond Comics Distribution, and this was Diamond's first step in going national, and as we but know their today... their final step. Oh, sorry, their final step, and uh, as we know today, they are the only game in town, I think, you know, I, I don't think anyone else distributes comics at all, unless they are, like... Does Bob Rosakis still drive the uh, comic mobile? Yeah, no, I think I think he quit doing that. So yeah, oh. after that, that was pretty much it. <laughs> uh, now, in the mid 1970s, comic shops and direct distribution began to take hold, and uh, we'll discuss that again at length at another time. But this system would step in place of this head shop university distribution. Um, it used to be the publishers who would just ship comics from their office apartments or dorm room to colleges and these other, uh, you know, hippie establishments. But now with distribution, now you've got actual distribution you know what i mean you got trucks uh fill, fulfilling orders and keeping inventory and these kind of things are happening uh it was originally mostly contacts through the underground press syndicate which we discussed last episode now it is you know by your business number and whether or not you have a storefront so uh it legitimizes the underground comic to an extent uh and this sort of dovetailed with the change of content nicely it's hard to say which one influenced the other but certainly by dropping the, you know, crazy amount of dope smoking and blatant pornography and kind of going more into autobiographical content, uh, it was just something more palatable to a comic shop rather, you know, obviously than, I mean, I, there are some of these underground comics that really should not be seen by anyone, folks. I've seen things, <laughs> I've seen things that you'll never forget. So, uh, yeah, it, it definitely, I mean, as, a, as, as I mentioned here, uh, <laughs> 
mainstream comic book fans liken more to the autobiographical content more than trippy drawings and super violent bikers skewering penises, mm-hmm. which is an actual comic. Yes. <laughs> but then we got to ask ourselves: Are these are these comics still considered underground? Um, when we uh, first started this, we said that the underground comics were independently produced, distributed through a closed system, and they espoused the counterculture, which uh, this our, our definition really doesn't hold water anymore since uh, you know all comics are moving to a closed system, and for all intents and purposes, outfits like Charlton, Harvey, and even Marvel uh, were independent, at least at the time. Yeah. Uh, whereas DC, they were already they were already owned by uh, Warner Brothers. Although although it's 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 something to say that their distribution would have still been considered it, it's somewhat independent, you know, outside of the newsstand mm. system. It is you know so sort of in the same boat. Yeah, but then uh, you know a case could probably be made here that all comic art is subversive. Yeah, uh, this is which a tough is something one. we can expound on, I suppose. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's. I mean, this this is something. This is definitely uh, in the opinion realm. But I've always felt that comic as an art is subversive because it's inherently commercial. Hmm. So it it's totally against any concepts of high art, and yet it can be you know the most beautiful. Ornate sure. thing, you know. It, it's it's subversive in the say that in the same way I would consider advertising to be a subversive art. I would consider graffiti to be a subversive art. It's not about it's not about uh, technique or craft. It's about how it takes away from the conventions of what you, what people consider expect. art expect. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, many will say that comics are not art, uh, and they would be wrong. It's wrong. so I you know that that's that's my feeling on it. Um, you could make that case, but then you could also make the case that an autobiographical thing is not inherently subversive. I mean, if I were to do my autobiography, believe me, it would not light up the world. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went to work, which which is essentially what a lot of these became. But uh, you know, yeah. it's uh, so. This is a topic for discussion, and we would love to discuss some of this with you guys. If you do want to email us, we'll drop that at the end of the show. Absolutely. But uh, here we're looking at, you know, we're looking at an underground where it's everything and nothing. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are no underground comics, but at the same time, every comic that is released is, in a way, underground. Um, perhaps the story of the true underground comics could we could actually draw a line under it here. This could yeah. be the end of it. Um, but these uh, creators' careers, they don't end, and neither does uh, the interest in outsider art or clearing houses for new talent. Um, from about, say, uh, 1976 on, we consider uh, the underground comics a genre or a style or even a certain set, set of ethics, uh, if those ethics applied in the first place. And uh, that has more to do with being autobiographical than subversive and difficult to find. Uh, it's you know it's worth saying that many of the comics we rattled off in the, la- the list last episode had runs of a couple thousand issues at best. Yeah, they weren't like so pervasive that you know. In fact, if you go on eBay and look some of them up, you'll find that they're quite expensive because they're very pricey. Yeah, there's not yes. many of them around. Yeah, and when we say a couple thousand issues, we're not talking about numbering into the thousand. We're talking about a thousand were printed. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. Um, yeah, <laughs> a thousand there was copies not, exist. Yeah, there was no furious, what the furry freak brothers number one thousand two hundred. No, that'd be kind of great though. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it would. Um, now, what, once this form of expression existed, it was impossible for uh, Pandora's box to close again. And uh, not long after, a new crop of artists and uh, comics would appear and persist, though they would maybe uh, perhaps subscribe to a 
like an altered definition of underground you think yeah i i think i think that definition is what we're talking about you know autobiographical content or uh we're going to go into other black and white comics that came out later but you know it, just a just a sort of the the definition of underground being you know someone new and someone maybe drawing maybe drawing a little crudely not not ready for prime time players we might call them uh but you know you, chris really helped me a lot with this part because i really struggled with what i wanted to say which essentially was exactly what uh he he really helped me here uh to say that uh that the cr creator's careers do not end so the so the story of underground comics and like again the ethics of not all these people they went on they didn't all go on to do mainstream work they still kind yeah. of stayed below the radar because they liked the freedom of it uh, you know not unlike uh, Steve Ditko staying with uh, Charlton even though he's getting less money so anyway we hope we uh, I hope that we did a good job trying to explain how the underground comic shifts and and in truth again. Um, what we would really say is because these are no longer underground and yet you still have to go to a special boutique shop to get your hands on them so it's not yeah. exactly like they're so ubiquitous you're not going to pick them up on the way home from work anymore no um, so that's a really a larger discussion about the shift in comics at this time and it affected underground as well as mainstream and uh if you want to talk about it please do email us like i say we will get into that at the end of the show but i would love to hear you guys thoughts on whether we could have just shut up now and moved on <laughs> or uh but there is a guy i really wanted to talk about and this guy would be the uh poster child for the new autobiographical content of the underground comic and his name was Harvey Picar. Now, we mentioned this fella in the last episode, one of the guys that Robert Crumb fell in with while in Cleveland. Uh, Harvey Lawrence Picar was born October 8, 1939, in Cleveland, Ohio. Parents Saul and Dora Picar were immigrants from Bialystok, Poland, and he had a younger brother named Alan. His dad, Saul, was a Talmudic scholar who owned a grocery store on Kinsman Avenue in Cleveland. His family, his family lived above the store. I thought this was interesting because this is sort of late in the century, but his first language was Yiddish. Yeah, uh, that, that is odd for being this 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 side of fifty. Uh, yeah, it, it, yeah. I thought that was it. Yeah, it's like that's something you really expect in the earlier part of late nineteenth yeah. century. But anyway, like, you know, uh, it's not not impossible. I don't I don't think he ever did a Yiddish comic, but that would be kind of cool. <laughs> now his neighborhood, he says, it turned rough during the 1940s, and he would get into a lot of fights. He says it gave him an inferiority complex, although he did get pretty good at scrapping. Uh, Harvey had what I think we might call panic attacks today, uh, debilitating waves of anxiety that left him paralyzed and feeling sick. And during the 1950s, he developed a lifelong appre appreciation for jazz music that will become very important later on. He graduated Shaker Heights High School in 1957, and he joined the Navy that same year, but he was discharged for mental reasons, which doesn't mean he was bonkers. It could be a lot of things. We don't know. I'm sure it was anxiety. Yeah. I'm guessing, yeah. He was probably anxious in the field or something. Uh, he held a couple of random jobs when he returned, including working at his uncle's junkyard as a, and a file clerk for the U.S. Railroad Retirement Board. Uh, in 1958, he moved to New York City briefly, met jazz critic Ira Gittler, who encouraged him to write for the Jazz Review, a magazine that incredibly had jazz reviews. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> very well titled, I always thought, that magazine. I think that's a good... Uh, <laughs> uh, his first article was about Fats Navarro, and that was published when Harvey was 19. Uh, he attended Western Reserve University in 1959. That would become Case Western Reserve University in 1967. But he left before the year was out after panicking over a bad grade. And I just want to say briefly, 
the story of how Western Reserve University became Case Western Reserve University <laughs> is really interesting. It was one of these sidebars that I got into. <laughs> uh, not worth talking about here, but if, if you want to look, do 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 a little search. It's it's not like it's not going to blow your mind, but it was interesting to see how they came together. Uh, his dad kicked him out of the house right then, and uh, Harvey got a job with Concord rec Record Distributors. He married a woman named Carrie Delaney in 1960. Now, the Jazz Review folds, but Harvey goes on to write reviews for other jazz magazines, and he would continue to write for various publications as well as trade and collect records for the rest of his life. This is always happening right up until the day he expires. So uh, I'm not going to mention every article, but I could have because I actually did see all that information, and it was a lot of stuff. Yes. Uh, he met Robert Crumb shortly after he and Dana Crumb moved into Cleveland in 1962. And they were part of sort of a bohemian scene of blue-collar workers, though. Uh, Cleveland beat, I think, is kind of the way you'd put it. Uh, they were also intellectuals, but, uh, you know, this wasn't the uh, literati you might have seen in New York, or uh, definitely the hippie scene had not really happened yet. Now, seeing Crumb's artwork, Harvey began to understand and the possibilities of the comic book narrative. He said, comics could do anything film could do, and I wanted in on it. It would be ten years before he'd make his comics debut. Which is probably just as well, since it would be six years until the underground comics explosion anyway. Uh, in 1965, Harvey Picar got a job as a file clerk at the Veterans Hospital, and he would work there for 36 years, refusing promotions and offers to work in other departments until retiring... In 2001, he always called this his flunky job. Very, very interesting, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, in a 1970, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Stuff, I know. But I mean, just just the uh, the mental maladies he must have faced. Yeah. yeah. Just uh, so, you know, I've 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 known Anna, and I've also worked with people in a uh, in a counseling setting who are, who are similar to this, and it's 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 fascinating. It's uh, and, and there was nothing for people like this at the time. You know, you would, there still isn't much. That's true. I, I guess they would have given you, you know, barbiturates then and give them to you now, too. You know, that's pretty much what they do. Yeah, they just cost more now. Yeah. Um, in uh, 1970, he wrote an article about Robert Crumb for the uh, Journal of Popular Culture. Uh, encouraged by Crumb, in 72, he uh, wrote a story for the people for the People's Comics that uh, came out in September of 72, which, like the rest of the comic, was drawn by Robert Crumb. Uh, he, he actually submitted a story plotted out with stick figures. Uh, it was about an idiosyncratic co-worker named Crazy Old Ed. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, that same year, he and Karen Delaney, uh, they would get divorced. Uh, Harvey continued to contribute to jazz magazines and to the Journal of Popular Culture. In uh, 1976, he had a strip titled, How'd You Get Into This Business Anyway? <laughs> that came out in, uh, in Bizarre Sex Number no. 4, September 1976, and was illustrated by Gary, Gary, Dr Gary Dumb? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and Gary Budget. Okay, they would be regular artists for his forthcoming solo project. I mean, the, the, which... these are two guys that basically are only known for working on the the book you're about to talk about. So I'm not surprised. You know, you know, like, <laughs> these aren't famous, you know, people. No, but that's it. Uh, that, that book uh, is American Splendor, no, or was American Splendor number one. Uh, this is a book he self-published in 1976 and uh, yearly until 1991, and then uh, more sporadically until uh, 2008 with uh, the 36th issue. And uh, this uh, is basically the portrait of an artist laid bare, uh, the inner workings of a very bright and also very tortured mind. Uh, virtually all the stories are autobiographical, and they range from being humorous to uh, painfully inc incisive. Uh, it's it's how we know uh, so many details about this man's life. Yeah. Um, 
Americans, it, it, it must be said that American Splendor is not for everyone. Uh, it doesn't contain anything really fantastical or impossible. Uh, no real scenes of high flying action uh, or, or many, you know, mood panels. But it is very revealing, uh, both about Harvey and sometimes, uh, sometimes you might be able to even see something of about yourself in there, uh, your own, your anxieties, your hopes. Yeah. Uh, have, have, a, you, have, have you read this one, Chris? You ever see it? It's been a long time, but yeah, I did read this uh, around the time the movie came out. Yeah, I was. Uh... My dad used to get this, and I was I was a fan. I, when I was younger, I didn't really understand it, but uh, I started mm. to kind of get into it more in the 90s, and it really is a, a interesting work, you know? I think that people that are into comics history and maybe, yeah. um, you know, the, the places comics can go should give a, maybe give it a look. Uh, I wouldn't call it, you know, it, it, the thing is the art in it ranges from Robert Crumb to, like, Chicken yeah. scratch, you know what I mean, yeah. and everything in between, you know. Uh, so it's it's not exactly I wouldn't call it a uh, tour de force of artwork, but no. it's definitely very interesting, and, I, and I've always had a lot of respect for that series. Absolutely, hundred uh, percent. Now this very same year, he contributed a few stories to uh, Flamed Out Funnies, uh, issue number one, by our, uh, coming out of Ripoff Press, uh, which illustrates that the uh, underground comics still existed, but the uh, content inside the books had maybe changed a bit. Um, in uh, 1977, he would marry uh, Locke Hall. Uh, they would not be married very long. <laughs> they got divorced in 1981. Uh, Jonathan Dem, uh, Dem or Demi? Demi. Demi. Yeah. Jonathan Demi uh, contacted uh, Picar about uh, maybe making a uh, a movie based on American Splendor, and this was in 1979. But at the time, nothing came of it. I mean, the comics only had three or four issues at this point. You That's know, crazy, already isn't people it? are really inspired by it. Yeah. Yeah, he's already getting options. Um, now, Demi is a very accomplished director and producer. He's probably best known for uh, The Silence of the Lambs from uh, 1991. Yeah. Uh, Joyce uh, Bradner, who co-owned a comic shop in Delaware, and in 1982, they ran out of American Splendor. So she would write Harvey a postcard to get another copy, and they began corresponding. At one point, she became hospitalized, and uh, Harvey would call her every single day, and he even sent her a collection of records for her to listen to. Wow. But, uh, you know, can you imagine sending, a, like, a, a bunch of your vintage comics to just some person you've talked to over the phone? Nope. Never. <laughs> you know, I might, I might send them a, a comicsology, you know, certificate, but that's about it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, or your, your CGC or something. Yeah. It's like, I feel bad you're in a jam, but you're only getting my reader copies. Yeah, <laughs> you know, really. You're not getting anything good. For sure. Um and uh, in 1983, uh, she came to Cleveland on business. The very next day, they got married. Um, they were very well paid. They were both pretty neurotic, and uh, they they would be married until uh, until his passing. Uh, Joyce is a fairly well recognized political activist and author these days. Um, in 1985, they would adopt Danielle Batone, and they raised her from uh, from the age of nine on. Yep, and she's still. Puttering out there, it's kind of a torchbearer for her father, and I believe she's a artist of her in her own right. I, mean, I, I don't really recall, but um, we're gonna take a break here. We're gonna and we're gonna come back to the Picar family later and tell you more about Aileen Kaminsky Crum and more about how complex the world of comics becomes here. And you know, this is uh, we're only gonna really touch on kind of this underground quote unquote aspect of it, but. Yeah, comics as you know, Chris and a lot of people and uh, and and I know they were going haywire right here, right as we go into the '80s. But we can't 
Let's talk about everything big, at once. So. Big changes in the wind, yes. Big time. Uh, you know, basically, newsstands vanish and direct distribution takes over completely during this time. But uh, that's going to affect the content and the looks of comics. And we're, we're going to talk all about that when we come back from the break. See you later. We'll talk to uh, James uh, Tuesday or Wednesday. You know, every time our next guest is in this studio, all of our lives are in serious danger. A big mess is left behind, and once again, I'm forced to hold strange creatures. Uh, here's a tape of what he used to be like. Watch closely. Well, I'm a hundred bucks, man. No, no, well, I got 490 now. 490, you know? yeah. And that's good. Yeah. That's good. You I don't like... have to sell books. I don't have to do anything. But you come just... because you like being with me, don't you? I don't even know you, man. <laughs> Gentlemen, please welcome the new and improved comic book author, Harvey Picar. Harvey. Hi, Harvey. Nice to see you. Harvey. You know, Harvey, uh, first of all, thank you very much for putting us on the cover of your uh, new issue of American Splendor, volume number 12, right? right. And uh, I, I, read the, I read it cover to cover. Very entertaining stuff. Thank you, thank, thank you very much. Appreciate that. And you look, you look good, and you sound, you sound better. You, last time, you sound a little hoarse. Now you sound very relaxed, kind of contented. <laughs> Man, you don't know what I sound like. Like, see if I try to talk like this. See, that's how you yeah, used to sound. Yeah, yeah, right. And now you sound a little like Vaughn Monroe. Yeah, right. You like? You want me to sing Racing with the Moon? Yeah, let's hear a little. <laughs> go on, go on. <laughs> but what, what, what has caused the change? I don't know what's caused the change. Are you happier now? Are you more relaxed now? No. I don't know what's caused the change, David. The last time I saw an ENT doctor. Ear, nose, and throat. Yeah. Very good, David. <laughs> on a technical jargon. Uh -huh. uh, the last time I, you know, like I saw an EMT doctor, and this is the truth, mm -hmm. he said uh, uh, that, you know, like he didn't know what was wrong with me, and I had a, his advice was that I should, you know, like call on my inner resources. Mm -hmm. Try to heal yourself. Uh, $35, that's what I paid for, you know. <laughs> so you went to a top flight man then, huh? They're all the same, they're yeah. all the same. I work in a hospital. They're, you look good. You, see, you seem a little more, uh, I don't know, laid back. No, no, I, I keep him, I don't know, man, you know, I feel all right. That's good. How, how are things in Cleveland? I always like to hear how things are uh, from the city on the man, banks of I Lake Erie. That's a stupid question. You know it's a stupid question. <laughs> you know, you're trying to bait me. Man. I'm not trying to bait you. Now tell me about Cleveland. How are things? How's the summer? How's the ball team? Are they out of it now? Well, you want to talk about baseball? Ask me about the. Ask me straightforward. They're, they're, yeah, it looks like a bad year. For you them. go to a lot of games? I haven't gone this year. I'll go see them. Yeah. All right. You know, I mean, I'm disappointed. I don't have any pitching. You know, what yeah. can I do? Well, that's but, all right. Yeah. Always next year. Wait till next year. <laughs> Yeah, babe, wait till next week. <laughs> now, Harvey, a, it's right, been called to my attention. It's been called to my attention that you, and I'm guessing as a result of your appearances on this program, have Probably been so, have been offered your own television show. As a matter of fact, is that true? That, folks, I want to tell you, that's the truth. That is. I don't want to tell you what network. I mean, it wasn't like it was like offered to do a pilot. A pilot for whom? Who made the offer? I, I don't want to tell you because I turned it down and I don't want them there. Oh, sorry. Tell us what I, what, I what are going to do. No, no. Was it a cable deal? Was it? Oh no, it was for another network. Was it like ABC? I bet it was ABC. ABC. 
It was another network. Because they got up. nothing, you know. ABC is really hurting. I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want it. CBS. Was it CBS? Look, man, you're going to get it down to one. No, I don't want to tell you because I plan, I was nice to them to make the offer. I don't want to spit on them, you know? Okay, it was right. a nice thing. What, what, kind of, what kind of show was it? What, like what a talk it? show. Going to be a talk show. Yeah, it was a talk show. And then what kind of guests would you have? I didn't even consider that question because I don't want to do it. Now, why, why wouldn't you want to do it? Well, I've seen you here. <laughs> Don't be discouraged by one lousy example. <laughs> Look, you want to know? I'll give you a serious Big answer. dough, Harvey. Big Stop money. Stop interrupting me, will you? I'm sorry. You answer, I'm going to give you, okay. you know, the answers. There's a variety of reasons why. First of all, you get co-opted. You can't, not that this is serious, but you can't do anything serious. And it's, it's a drag to go on night after night doing simple minor bull****. <laughs> to be so serious all the time i mean i you know like once in a while i wouldn't mind it you know like on this show like you know like i've been having aggravation for two damn days now you know like i don't want to i've been just having a well, lot don't of hold back harvey whatever no, okay. whatever you're feeling let it out i'm not all the time david discretion is the better part of valor Thank sometimes you. yeah that old adage got to you huh all right uh but uh the thing is that uh uh, you know, like, you know, like I, I come up with, you know, I've been, been aggravated and then, uh, like, you know, Morton, your man, asked me all these questions about what I'm going to talk about, you Well, know? that's standard and, procedure. Yeah, Everyone I know, goes through I know, that. I know. And when you have your own show, you'll have somebody uh, yeah, preparing everything for it. Show, like, Would you yeah. sing on the show, Harvey? Would there be a little singing? I might, I might. I'm Would you open the show with a song, I maybe? might, I might. An aria. I might. <laughs> an aria. <laughs> But you can't, you can't do, you know, like... You want meat and potato stuff. You want issues. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'd like, I'd like to have some issues. And wait a minute. All right, wait, we'll do a commercial, now, and then we'll yeah, get to some right. issues. That was a, you messed up a segue, a beautiful segue that I set up. You gonna stick a commercial in here? Yeah. I told you about this. All right, go ahead and do your damn commercial. <laughs> we'll be right back with Harvey Back here with uh, Harvey Picard, and again, I want to mention this is a really nice piece of work. And I got something I want to. We're on the cover. Um, yeah, all right, fine. But it's yeah. better to be on Esquire anyway. It's a jive yuppie magazine, man. You know. Anyway, I want to tell you, like you know, you're talking about being, you know, I was talking about being co-opted, and about not. What does that mean exactly? Co-opted. What are we you know, talking like about? Like when that? they buy you out or something like that. Well, that wouldn't mean. Would have been compromised. That's right. You know, like a guy like you, you know that. You know, it wouldn't mean anything to you because no, you don't sell you know, out like that. Well, yeah, you know, no, not so much that, but you don't read much, and so some of the stuff don't, you know, mean anything. That's right, I don't read right, much. You're right, Harvey. Yeah, I, we both right. know that, yeah. David. Yeah. Don't yeah. give me no crap. This is the guy writing comic books telling me I don't read much. Look, man, I want to just tell you this. You're always making these little cute remarks about GE, but there's a reason that, you know, people should be, you know, watching GE real close that don't have nothing to do with, you know, Robert Wright's toilet habits. And I want to tell you something about that stuff. No, wait a minute. I'm serious. No, we're Number one. Let's... Damn it. Now, man, don't mess with me. <laughs> Number one, 
Yeah. Yes. Number one, they're being sued in Ohio because they sold they sold these nuclear reactors around the country. Harvey, Harvey, oh. this is very bad manners. I don't care, man. This is very, very inappropriate. Number two, um, do I come to where you're working and, and badmouth the uh, Veterans Administration? You could if you wanted to. <laughs> got a, a place called Kidder Peabody that they own, a, a Wall Street firm that they just had to pay $25 million fine on. See if Jack uh, Hanna's back there with some snakes. <laughs> Bring out a handful of snakes for Harvey. They got a long history of antitrust okay. violations. But, but again, Harvey, let me just interrupt here because, up. no, 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 no. Look, I just don't think, I don't care not, not so much out of defense of uh, General Electric, uh, but I just Robert feel that this Wright. is not the forum for this kind care. of discussion. See, if you had your own talk Robert show, Harvey, Wright. if you had your own I talk show, Show, you can talk about this stuff on your talk show. Right. Okay. Something what do you win? Man? You can't play a little softball? <laughs> you, you are terribly impolite. You are terribly impolite. I feel my problem. I invited you to play softball and you make a rude gesture. Not to you, I was to your audience. Oh, well, sure. Then you folks can take care of him if you want. My thanks to uh, Jack Hanna and all those wonderful animals. Uh, Monday, it will be Letitia Baldridge and uh, singer Carl Perkins. Have a good weekend, folks. Good night. And we are back from the break, and we are going to get back into the uh, folks we were talking about, Harvey Picar and Aileen Kaminsky-Crumb. But first, I want to talk a little bit about the black and white comics revolution. This is another topic that will probably be expanded on in uh, the episode about the direct market, because this oh, is... Definitely tremendous in that and and plays in a lot into what would become the speculator boom and bust of the 90s but that's not really what we're going to talk about here uh what we're talking about is black and white comics uh, at the same time as these underground comics many of which were black and white themselves but they really began to prol proliferate uh taking cues from the independence of underground comics and these new venues uh, offered through direct distribution which were comic stores uh, now, like I said, that many of these other comics were black and white, but these other black and white comics, what we're calling that, these were more traditional comic book themes. These weren't autobiographical comics. They were done more by practice artists instead of kind of like this anything goes, anyone can get into uh, underground comics ethic. Uh, for example, Aileen Kaminsky, as we talked yes. about. Uh, <laughs> there were good artists in the underground comics, but, you know, take a look at some of those anthologies and, you know, let us know what you think of the uh, disparity in artwork. It kind of yes. runs the gamut. Um, but, but these other black and white comics, these were drawn by people who really uh, were into the comics craft and they, you know, had uh, really practiced their storytelling and stuff. Uh, the first one and very famous one was called Cerebus the Aardvark. It was written and drawn by Canadian cartoonist Dave Sim, self-published under his Aardvark Vanheim banner. Uh, artist Gerhard would jump on for backgrounds with the 65th issue. That's right, 65th issue. This was uh, an anthropomorphic Aardvark's wacky adventures. 
published issue one in 1977 and over the course of 27 years would produce a continuous, though strange and sort of uh, disjointed in its, you know, what <laughs> happens with Cerebus over the time, but 300 issue story arc, uh, which is yes. quite a feat for any comic, but especially and it, for- it, it looks like that, that record is going to be shattered within the next couple of years. Oh yeah, well, well who's, who's closing in on it? Spawn. Spawn is at issue 266, I think, right now. Wow. So there and, you go. Uh, yeah, he's really gotten his stuff together where they're they're putting out at least 12 issues of that a year. So uh, the the big 300 is going to be uh, shattered. They're doing they're doing 12 issues a year of Spawn right now. Yeah. At least. Hats off to. Yeah. Him. Hats off. Yeah, absolutely. Because that, was, that actually... wasn't the case last time I was paying attention. <laughs> no. <to you>. <laughs> actually, the, for the last uh, like six months or so, uh, McFarlane and Eric Larson have been doing it together. I heard. And, uh, I heard it's Larson been pretty was good. on it. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I did like it in the 90s because I really thought it was uh, really unique. You know what I mean? The lettering and stuff, especially. It, but I haven't looked at definitely. It. One of the best of the image launch, yeah. Oh, for off that initial one, which is again, that'll be a whole other topic. Actually, we are going to we are going to touch on that a little bit next next episode, but that really do, will deserve its own episode sometime. Anyway, well, and back. also of of that three hundred issue arc, uh, there were some issues that were dual numbered. That's right. Which was weird. Yeah, like that, it was like issue two fifty, two fifty one. It was. It, it was strange, and and there were there were some one offs in there also. Yeah. There were a few. Uh, we would probably think of them as annuals. I don't think he called them that. Uh, but but, um, it's this is not a you know you, yeah. If you stack them up, they wouldn't maybe total three hundred issues, or they might total three oh two or something. But this is uh, also an issue zero. There is an issue zero, which yeah. came out after the fact, though, right? After the fact. It was yeah. a thicker, mm. thicker, almost uh, magazine-ish type of deal. Yeah, and that one is not collected, I believe, or maybe it is now. I have no idea, but I, I'm I, not sure. I know that's one of the few that I have outside of the collected editions, which yeah. are uh, in several omnibi known as phone books because they're very chunky and they're printed on pulp paper. Uh, that, as I, as I remember, matches the original stock of the comic, so that works fine. And also, uh, I forgot to mention this, but the first issue of Spawn was like, the uh, first issue of Cyrobus was like one of the most counterfeited comics of the time. It, like it was where, all uh, newsprint, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah and I, and, uh, and that's one of the things like when, you, when I used to flip through like Wizard and stuff, looking at the price guides because I was, you know, obsessed with that kind of stuff. They would always have the... Uh, the note about there being a uh, copy fit, counterfeited version. I mean, this, this is how, this is how the landscape of comics is changing. That yeah, something that not long before this. I mean, you know, going back to the origin, you couldn't think of a more disposable thing. Yeah, uh, you know, we went into a whole long history during the code about how a lot of them went to the pulp drive, but also you traded them around, you read them until they fell apart. No one ever thought about keeping them. Now we are in a world of true comics fandom. People have preserved them. People are trading them. People are spending quite a bit of money on uh, original printings and rare issues. And this is all part of that. And it's all going to feed into it. And it's going to build it to a crescendo of obscene proportions uh, <laughs> yes. that, in a way, we can't wait to talk about. But it's, uh, it's again, it's part of a massive amount of information that we got to call together at some point. Um, Absolutely. Cerebus, though, for its time and for its scope, that was huge. Uh, it's, it had at least one role-playing game, a little clutch of merchandise that I remember seeing, all types of pins and stuff back in the day. Um, the second collection, High Society, in 1984, this was offered by mail order only. That pissed off comics retailers, and they had been loyal to the comic. But it was a huge financial windfall for Sim, 
grossing over $150,000 in sales in 1980s dollars, mind you, too. This was uh, quite a bit of money, especially for a, jack. Yeah, for an independent comics guy. This is like the John Byrne money right here. Uh, at this point, Cerebus shifted from a parody of the sword and sorcery barbarian genre. Uh, that would be Conan the Barbarian or Tor uh, and comics in general to social commentary on creators' rights, politics, gender, entertainment, and religion. Dave Sim guest wrote the 10th issue of Todd McFarlane's Spawn and gave his entire fee, $100,000, to the comic book legal defense fund. Um, you said this is an amazingly weird and pretentious issue, especially during yeah. the heyday of Image Comics' uh, 90s success. Yeah, yeah um, this wasn't something anyone saw coming. <laughs> yeah, it's, and, and, and you it's, know, Image, it's quite precious. Image was not really known for being so precious, really, you know, no. in, its, in, its, in its time. It was really more about the high-flying action and grimacing. About boobs and legs and, and blood. And, and, weapons, uh, and weapons. And weapons. Let's not forget and weapons, weapons that defy realistic proportions. Defy any sense of physics or logic, really. Yeah, I mean, that too. You know, guns with multiple barrels for some reason. Yep. It, it, it Huge calves, tiny ankles. Beautiful time. A beautiful time in comics. <laughs> Um, Dave Sim, he's somewhat of a persona non grata in the industry now. Uh, he reportedly cut all ties with his family and colleagues during the production of Cerebus. He had public arguments with Terry Moore, who did the Strangers in Paradise series, created uh, homage comics, and Jeff Smith, who was known for doing Bone. Both of them credit Dave Sim as a big influence, and uh, he challenged uh, Jeff Smith to a boxing match. Could you imagine that? Dave Sim is sort of a loose cannon, folks. Uh, look, look him up online. <laughs> Like Jeff Smith's like a stuffed animal, you know. <laughs> I can't think of anyone less, you know, uh, someone you'd want to fight. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, the the content of the argument that I really looked at too is just like, uh, from my impression, Dave Sim just sort of went off the rails. Off the handle. And, yeah. Um, yeah, you you're gonna have to look him up online, and you see that. I think probably that hundred fifty thousand dollar windfall seems to have been a breaking point <laughs> in his uh, life and personality. Uh, which is funny because I'd never heard of money changing people's personalities before. That but never happens. Um, seems to maybe have happened this one time. So uh, Sim <laughs> seemed to be something of a Luddite during the rise of the internet. A very little correspondence of his would show up online. Word has it he would write something and perhaps another person would transcribe it and put it online. Yeah. Um, which doesn't help your communication with the industry <laughs> that much. Uh, mm -hmm. Since the wrap of Cerebus, Sim seems to have become more jovial and open in discussion from 2009 to 2012. He had a hand in something called Cerebus TV, which was interesting in a public access on the internet sort of way. It's uh, still all up on the internet. It's oh, still available. Still... It's, I think it's Cerebus.tv. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's weird. It's, it's, it's mainly him talking, though, isn't it, right? Yeah, it's him talking, him drawing, him uh, visiting comic stores. It feels... It feels like, you know, like I turned on Manhattan Public Access in 1993. It, does, it, it really does have a very old school yeah. feel to it, but uh, I definitely love, I love public access back Me in too. the same day, so <laughs> I'm, I'm all for it. I, 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 I've seen some of it, but I, I never really sat and watched the full archive of uh, mm. Cerebus TV. Um, fall asleep, too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know if that's a ringing endorsement, but all right. Uh, Sim Cerebus follow-up, Cerebus in Hell, is reportedly due out sometime this winter, and uh, we are holding our breaths for it. Yes. Now, uh, Sim and Gerhardt have been nominated and won, uh, nominated for and won many awards. Uh, the Diamond Jemmy, known as Small... Uh, sorry. He won the Diamond Jemmy as a small press pioneer. I don't know the year of that. Won the Inkpot Award in 1981. Won the Kirby Award for Best Black and White Series, 1987-1985. Uh, 
Eisner Award for Best Graphic Album Reprint 1994 for Service Flight by Dave Sim and Gerhard. Harvey Award Best Cartoonist, Writer and Artist 1992, Dave Sim for Cerebus. Best Letterer 2004, Dave Sim for Cerebus. Uh, that, that sounds, you know, the lettering is, is kind of a silly thing to praise someone for, but Dave Sim's lettering is awesome. It really is awesome, yeah, and, and he's, it's not just standard, you know, he, he goes wild. It is, Even oh, the sound it is effects amazing. And the, uh, you know, the way he shows inflection, uh, it's oh. really, it's really excellent stuff. Uh, he yes. deserved that one. To be honest, I'm not positive he won all of these, whether he was nominated, but uh, to be nominated is still... Quite an, it's an honor in of itself. You're in a, yeah, you're in a group of like three other people. Yeah. Uh, he won the Ignatz Awards for Outstanding Artist in 1998, Dave Sim, uh, by himself. Joe Schuster Award for Outstanding Canadian Comic Book Achievement in 2005. That was uh, Dave Sim and Gerhard for completing 300 issues of Cerebus in 2004. Uh, Canadian Comic Book Creator Hall of Fame in 2006. And Outstanding Canadian comic book cartoonist 2009 for Glamourpus and Judenhaas, which I have not yes. ever looked at. I don't know if you ever saw those. I've, I've got Judenhaas. Uh, Glamourpus was coming out in single issues from uh, Vanaheim in around you know 2008, 2009. I, I never got into it, though. Mm. But, uh, uh, you know, Gerhard's backgrounds are, are ridiculous. Yeah, the, they the, are so good. The book takes off, after, I think, after that point. It's, you know, it, it's yeah. very quaint and, like, interesting, especially being Cottage made by one person. industry type thing, yeah. Absolutely. But after that, it starts to look like a real professional comic book, you know. Because uh, uh, Sim is a, Sim's a wonderful artist. Yeah, he is. Yeah. But uh, with Gerhard's backgrounds, oof. It kind of lends an official, like a, a authenticity, I don't know. Like a legitimacy. A legitimacy yeah. is the exact word, yeah, to the whole thing. Uh, I, yeah, I don't want to denigrate any of it. it. It's definitely worth reading and just more than just a There's a novelty thing. to it, yes. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's all still in print as far as I know. I think you can yeah. go out there and get them all whenever you want. Absolutely. Now we're going to talk about another black and white comic who is either to thank or to blame for hearing my voice right now. <laughs> uh, this is how I came into comics, through wow. uh, ElfQuest. Uh, this is by uh, Wendy and Richard Peeney, the husband and wife team from Poughkeepsie, New York. Uh, the first ElfQuest story was published in an underground comic book called Fantasy Quarterly, number one. Uh, that was May 1978, and uh, it folded immediate, almost immediately after publication. Uh, the Peenies were rightfully disappointed in the quality of this comic book and decided to form Warp Graphics. Uh, it's capital W, little a, capital R, capital P for Wendy and Richard Peeney. Yep. Um, they did so with borrowed money, and they self-published ElfQuest number two in 1978. Uh, the initial arc, which is the, uh, what is it, the, the quest, I guess it was. Yeah. Uh, they would continue until 1984 for, uh, with 20 issues. These, these issues were oversized. They were magazine-sized. Mm -hmm. Um, kind of like the size of like a record album. They're, they're hard to file. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, with uh, issue 21, that uh, began, uh, began a, a reprint of the first installment of Fantasy Quarterly, with uh, along with fan letters. Uh, along the way, the title became a wild fan favorite. And uh, while it's no longer a black and white comic, it's still published to this day. I got one not too long ago. Wow. Um, Marvel would reprint the 20-issue run in a 32-issue run, 32-issue uh, run of their own, because they yes. had an extra. They had a, they had only 22 pages as compared to the 32 pages that the Peenies had. And I assume they had to shoot it down, right? It's probably very. They did. I assume it's much more inferior to the. Uh, original. I never. I've never looked at the Marvel ones myself. 
That's where I started. Oh, I started through uh, some trades because it was one of the only comics that the library had. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I immediately jumped onto the Marvel books. I mean, you know, for and, a long time, I don't want to derail too much, but this really was one of the only comics trades. You know, there were a few. Absolutely. That, you know, there were fireside ones from Marvel, and there were, you know, a handful of things out there, but this was, that was it. You, you know, you couldn't. No, get, they were pioneers. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because you'd have uh, you'd have your ElfQuest books. You'd have like Sons of Origins of Marvel Comics. Right, right. You'd and have that... how to draw how to draw comics the Marvel way, and you'd have Garfield. Yeah, and they're, all on the same shelf. It's basically, that that really is how it was. Yeah, Jules yeah. Pfeiffer's book, and that'd be it. Yep. And uh, they uh, these were like we said, they they ran for an extra twelve issues. Went to issue thirty two under the Epic Comics imprint, which we will get to, I think, next week. We're gonna um, talk more about that next week. Yeah, and uh, most of the issues actually included a new page of original art because uh, they had to break the issues in half or in parts, so yeah. they had to put new title pages in there. Wow. Um, my my first uh, my first encounter with them was through the Father Press Complete ElfQuest series, which actually reprinted the Marvel pages in the back of the book. Huh. Yeah. Uh, in uh, 1997 or 19, I'm sorry, 1987 or 1988, Skywise, who is a kind of Cutter's sidekick in ElfQuest, uh, he was inducted into the in, into MIT. Yeah, in their <laughs> freshman class, which yes. I guess is a thing you can do at least at that school. I didn't know you sure, could, you why could not? register a fictional character, but sure. <laughs> now, uh, in 1992, ElfQuest launched a, a series called New Blood. These would be the first ElfQuest stories that were not written or drawn by the Peonies. And this is where I jumped off. Oh. <laughs> um, this was 1992, uh, and the book, the, the issue was $5. And, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, that, that'll, that'll keep a young Chris uh, off it right that, there. That kept, that kept the young Chris. Uh, I, 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 I hated the book instinctively <laughs> because it was so expensive, and I, I turned my back for a while. Plus, plus um, you had all that young blood happening in the... Uh... In the comic shop that to take your attention, so there it is. This is true. This is true. And those were those were also five dollars for some Ooh, reason. We'll get to another time. Yeah. <laughs> now, of course, would also spawn a, a series of prose novels, and a, a bunch of uh, role-playing game sets. Um, and actually, it is. I'm kind of I'm kind of going back here again, but it was through uh, a book called the Elfquest Gatherum. Which had several pages of role-playing models that I actually got into this because I used to draw role-playing models for my friends who played Dungeons and Dragons because I couldn't sit still long enough to play it myself, <laughs> and I still wanted to be part of it. You were the ref. Um, you were the referee. Yes, <laughs> yes I was the mascot. Um, now, uh, ElfQuest and Warp, they would uh, explode into several different uh, concurrently running books, uh, fleshed out the world and drawing in a lot of fans. Um, the market collapsed, of course, um, as we all know, and we will discuss another time. Uh, but Warp uh, did conclude all their storylines by 2001. Uh, a couple of years later, DC Comics bought the rights to ElfQuest and have published reprints of their material in both um, manga-sized digest format as well as uh, the you know the big chunky DC archives that cost 50 bucks a pop. Yeah, and they also. Uh, they also released a uh, a few uh, original miniseries, which were the first ElfQuest stories in a while. Um, as of uh, 2009, all ElfQuest material, every story, is available for free online at ElfQuest.com. Awesome. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, anything on there you want to check out, which I highly recommend, it's it's there for free. I know J Jim jumped into it for that reason, and, and he's loved it. 
Yeah, yeah it's, one of the, it's it. one of the it's one of the things Jim and I have talked about. Um, was because uh, I guess uh, I guess Eric was really hyping the the book, and yeah. it, it made him instantly hate it. So well, yeah, that's, uh, as, as you know, that's them, you know. <laughs> yes. Um, now, uh, since uh, 2013, uh, Dark Horse has the property, and uh, they've been publishing uh, the first all new ElfQuest material in almost a decade. It's ElfQuest: The Final Quest. And uh, I think they're up to issue about 16 or 17 of that. It's bi-monthly. Hmm. Um, I've seen it. I've never picked it up, but I've seen it in the store. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not the best ElfQuest, but it's still ElfQuest. All right. Um, <laughs> ElfQuest has won several uh, awards, including uh, in 1979, the Ed April Award at the New York Comic Art Convention for Best Independent Comic. Uh, in 79 and 80, they got the Alley Award. In 80, the Small Press Writers and Artists Organization Best Artist in Comics, Wendy Peeney. Best Editor in Comics, Richard and Wendy Peeney. Um, 1981, Fantasy Press Comic Art Awards, the Woody Awards in honor of Wally Wood for Best Alternative Comic. Uh, 1983, Small Press Writers and Artists Organization for Best Comic. In 1983, Heroes Award, Heroes Aren't Hard to Find. This is the Best Black and White Magazine. Uh, 85, Balrog Award, the Sword and Shield Corps of Denver, Colorado, for the best artist, Wendy Peeney. Uh, 1986, Fantasy Festival Comic Book Awards, the El Paso Fantasy Festival, for best alternative comic. And 1989, the Golden Pen Award, the Young Adult Advisory Committee in Spokane, Washington Award. So, uh, heavily respected is, is what indeed. we see it here, yeah. And still uh, very approachable online. <laughs> yeah. Because... Because I, uh, I actually reviewed the uh, 25th anniversary special that DC put out on my site, hmm. and uh, Richard Peeney came by and commented on it. Nice. Yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty neat. They still got the independent spirit, and they, pro- they probably don't have to, you know what I mean? They could probably yes. tell you to screw off or to whatever. screw but, off. Uh, and, um, and also, uh, at these conventions, Wendy Peeney used to cosplay as Red Sonja. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yes. Uh, yeah, I've, n- I've never seen them at the at a convention, but uh, yeah, they these people are into it. They are in the scene. They are yes. created the scene. And you know, these two comics, Cerebus and, and ElfQuest, these are what we might call the granddaddies or the grandmommies or whatever it is of black and white comics. And we could go on and on naming them after this period. Oh wow! But and and I wouldn't be surprised if we eventually do some sort of episode about this uh, scene uh, someday. But but right now. We're going to jump to a property that you may not have heard of. It's called the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. What? Uh, yeah, this is, uh, I know, it sounds wild. I'll tell you all little about known, it. Yeah. <laughs> little known, little, little guys. Uh, this was created by Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird. It's about four anthropomorphic turtles that do ninja stuff under the guidance of an anthropomorphic rat named Splinter. Yes. Uh, Eastman and Laird formed Mirage Studios in Dover, New Hampshire, and self-published two issues of a book called The Gobbledygook. It was done on a copier and didn't feature any TMT stories, uh, but they did have an ad for the first issue on the back cover of Gobbledygook number two. Uh, they also got a full-page ad in Comics Buyer's Guide number 545, which definitely is the reason for their later success that we'll get into. But using money from their tax returns and some borrowed money from Eastman's dad, Eastman and Laird published a run of 3,275 copies of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles number one, in May 1984, and they debuted at a Dover comic book convention. Now, comic book speculation at this time was on the rise, as you know, it was throughout the 80s. But within months, copies of this initial printing were going for $150 in some places, which is wow. unbelievable. You know, this yeah. this 
comic and again this is something we will get more into with the direct market but this comic more than any others drove speculation this lit the fuse yeah, yeah. to the stratosphere i mean this 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 was it right here it started in may 1984 and pretty much died in 92 ish 93 yeah so comic book spec uh where that uh this resulted in the massive black and white comics explosion which could be detailed which will be detailed in the aforementioned series about the direct market. Dozens, if not hundreds of titles were produced between 85 and 93. Yeah, so it was a glut. So, I mean, an unbelievable <laughs> amount of comics. Uh, for reason, all I could think of is uh, High School Ninja Girls was one of them, right? Ninja High School, yeah. Ninja High School, and then there was yep. there was the radioactive black belt hamsters, you know? There was... Radio, radioactive black belt something, adolescent. Adolescent, I mean, it's yes. like a total ripoff, but it was like a satire ripoff. It was like... The, but I mean, there were just, I, it could go on and on. This is a, as big an explosion as the underground comics explosion, if not bigger. There were so many yeah. out there. Um, in uh, 130 issues of uh, Teenage, Mutant, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were published over four volumes uh, between 1984 and 2014, as well as 77 issues of Tales of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles over two volumes, and many, many, many series and crossovers, too numerous to list. I know each character got. Their own miniseries at least yeah, once, they, if not. They call them micro serieses. Oh yeah, that's just. A, I don't know why. Just to just to separate them, I guess, from uh, mainstream. <laughs> from the pack. Yeah, um, but really, too too many to list. Uh, all of these were produced by Mirage Studios, even after the property was sold to Nickelodeon, a subsidiary of Viacom, on October 21, 2009. Mirage retained the right to publish up to 18 issues of TMNT comics a year. And more famously, this series spawned a cartoon series of the same name, which had its own comic book adaptation, which was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Adventures, published by Archie Comics from August 1988 to October 1995. A pretty respectable run in itself, a I terrible think. terrible book. Yeah, for what was a, a shitty book and a pretty <laughs> crappy cartoon, frankly, but uh, I mean, you know, still, I mean, you know, that's pretty good. pretty good seven years there. Absolutely. Uh, two successful film franchises, an arcade and console, video games, and a massive number of toys, and oh, the merchandising. The endless merchandising, Chris, I mean, goodness. My, my garage is a, is, a, uh, is a shrine to uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, yeah, you have, you have quite a few of those old toys. Oh, uh, Lordy, Lord. I, got, I got big uh, Rubbermaid bins full of them, yeah. I mean, I mean you, you, could, you could spend a lifetime just getting the merchandising and never look at one of the comics, I'll tell you why. Absolutely. You, you might not even know it's a comic. You might not even know it's a comic. It's like they even come into the thing, but uh, they, I mean, there's so much of it. It's unbelievable. Uh, and several Teenage Mutant Several. This is such a. I, this is why they they titled it this is to screw up podcasters, yeah. isn't it? That's it. Um, They're prognosticators. So several new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles series are const- currently published by IDW, who have published more than sixty issues of their longest running TMNT series at the time of this recording. Uh, so huge, you know. I mean, Eastman <laughs> and Laird went from two broke guys to multimillionaires. Uh, they absolutely. Have, Pretty much do whatever the heck. I think Eastman still works on. Eastman's still on it. Yeah, still on the comic. Uh, Eastman, uh, Waltz, and Kernu are the uh, writers. Uh, do you read that? 
Yeah. Yeah. Is it? It, I, it looks good. I've seen preview it's, pages. It's not bad. It's a. It's. 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 You know. It's going to sound silly, but it's not my Ninja Turtles. But it's. It's not. Uh, it's not bad. <laughs> yeah. Landscape of comics changed drastically, and there didn't seem to be any space for anthology comics to showcase new creators. So now we're going to go back in time a little bit and check back in on Aileen Kaminsky. Uh, in uh, 1974, 1978, Robert and Aileen. Uh, published Dirty Laundry Comics with an X, number one and number two. These are jointly drawn and written stories about their lives and anxieties. Uh, this all came about because Aileen broke her foot chasing one of Robert's other girlfriends out of the house, yeah. uh, leaving her laid up uh, in a cast for months. And, and this, is, uh, this is collected, and you can probably see it online, and it's, it's hilarious because when I say jointly drawn, I mean in the same panel. Yeah, <laughs> and it's and again, if you want, it's, it's a clash. If yeah. you want to know what we're talking about, uh, why Aileen would may not have been included in that one issue of women's comics, this is a great place to check out why. <laughs> This is true. Um, they would ultimately get married in 1978. Uh, she changed her name to uh, Aileen Kaminsky Crumb eventually. Uh, now, despite the fact that her ex-husband once walked into her room while she and Robert were kind of doing it, or <laughs> just doing it, and he pointed a gun at Robert's head. Yeah, why not? So there's, is that an Arizona thing? Is that what we call uh, Arizona <laughs> courting? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's desert justice. There you right? go. <laughs> um, uh, she produced a Power Pack PAK comics, number one and number two. This isn't, uh, you know, Franklin Richards and his nope. friends. <laughs> uh, in uh, 1979 and 1981, this came out by Kitchen Sink Press. It was fully drawn and written by Aileen. It was somewhat autobiographical, told through uh, the protagonist. Uh, a character called The Bunch that basically looked like her. Yeah. Um, the name was taken from Robert Crumb's character, Honey Bunch Kaminsky, who he created before meeting her. Yeah, which is pretty that's, cool. That's a, yeah. yeah, quite a coincidence. Um, I didn't know if this was like a Devin Grayson situation where she you know, changed her name to meet something. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, meanwhile, <laughs> Robert Crumb himself drew whatever he liked, whenever he liked. And uh, the attachment of his name to any project guaranteed good sales, even in a down market for the uh, for the underground comics. Um, he was, you know, obviously he was courted by the publishers and the idol rich around the world. Um, he and Aileen would uh, see much of Europe during this period in the uh, late 70s. Uh, in 1981, they had their first and only child, Sophie. In March of 81, Last Gasp Press would publish Weirdo Comics, which was edited by Robert Crumb. It was uh, Weirdo Comics number one. Uh, it would publish 28 issues between 81 and 1993. It was first edited by Crumb up to issue 10, and then issued by and then edited by Peter Bag, who we will get to in a moment. Um, and up to uh, issue 18, and then it was handed off to Aileen for the rest of the run, except for 25, which was again uh, done by Bag. Uh, this was a low art response to Art Spiegelman and Francois Moulet's Raw, which we discussed uh, last episode. Mm. And it was to showcase a new breed of alternative, uh, a new breed of alternative cartoonists, including Peter Bag, who uh, born yes. on. <laughs> we told you we were talking about him, and here we are. <laughs> uh, born December 11th, 1957, in Peekskill, New York. Confirmation name is Peter Christian Paul Bag, the Paul part due to Paul McCartney. Just so you know, his father was in the military and recalls many drunken fights about money between his parents when he was a child. He moved to New York in mid-1970s to attend the School of Visual Arts for three semesters, but dropped out to work on Punk Magazine. Ostensibly a music magazine created in New York City by John Holstrom, who drew the covers for two of the Ramones albums. I know one of them is Road to Ruin. I can't think of the other one. And publisher Ged Dunn and resident punk Legs McNeil. 
this took the name from a Cream magazine article from two years earlier and is considered by some to be the reason the music genre was called punk rock in the first place. They published 15 issues between 1976 and 79, providing coverage of a small but growing New York music scene happening in clubs like Max's Kansas City and CBGB's covering bands like Blondie, Television, Dictators, and of course the Ramones. But it's best remembered for its comic strips. I mean, it had a heavy comic content. You, uh, I think there's a collection of these out there, but I've got a couple issues, and it's like uh, it's like they got Marvel-style fumetti, and they've got full-on comics, and uh, you know. Punk rockers in there. These comics were mainly contributed by John Holstrom, Barry London, who's known for uh, Dirty Duck, and he also drew Popeye officially for King Features after Bud Sagendorf and Peter Begg. Uh, back to him. Um, he also contributed to Screw Magazine in the, in the late 70s, and then Peter Begg and John Holstrom published three issues of Comical Funnies between 1980 and 1981, with contributions by Alan and Drew Friedman, among many others. Uh, Bag sent one of these to Robert Crumb, who liked the work enough to add Peter Bag to Weirdo Comics issues. As said before, Bag would edit Weirdo from 1983 to 86. In 1985, he wrote and drew neat stuff for Fantagraphics. It was 15 issues from 85 to 89. Uh, this was also sort of the beginning of what we would call the boutique comics publisher. There was a market yeah. for these high-end, uh, well, I don't know if you call them high-end, but these alternative comics packaged in attractive, you know, Bookstore packaging, um, which is, uh, you know, a whole other thing. But uh, this was a really wacky comic with, with a host of strange characters. This is pretty much when I first cottoned on to him, and uh, I really dig this. I don't know if it's uh, worth dropping Fantagraphics money on it, but, you know, yeah. it's, it's cool for sure. Uh, but he's best known for uh, making a comic from 1990 to 1998. He did 39 issues of Hate. This is a comic about and satirizing a uh, growing grunge rock scene right at the perfect time for it. Absolutely. Uh, Bag created and authored an all-ages comic for DC Comics called Yeah, about an all-girl rock band and featuring art by Gilbert Hernandez. The series lasted for nine issues from 99 to 2000. Yeah, and then uh, after the turn of the century, Marvel came a-calling. Uh, Bag would do his version of Spider-Man and the megalomaniacal Spider-Man uh, for Marvel. Uh, he'd follow this up with a Hulk title, a Hulk comic uh, called The Incorrigible Hulk, which was uh, completed, but it took a long time to release due to a management change at the at Marvel at the time. I think this was around the time that Bill Jemis was shown the door. Because um, uh, th it was, like we like we said in our You Decide episode, this was a very strange time at Marvel. They were uh, extending olive branches. They were reaching out to a lot of a lot of guys you wouldn't expect to be on you know mainstream especially you know guys like spider-man yeah um and uh it was, it was not a very good issue but we'll get to that <laughs> in a bit um you know in uh in august 2009 the incorrigible hulk story finally saw print in a in a marvel knights relaunched startling stories miniseries um, now, the Spider-Man story, I haven't read the Hulk story. Uh, I was kind of turned off by the Spider-Man one. Yeah. Um, it, it features like a like a not-so-pious Uncle Ben. I think he like owes money to, he owes like, gambling debts. He's just a, uh, he, he's not the, uh, you know, yeah. the, the Uncle Ben we think about. So when, you know, Peter gets the bite, he doesn't have that nagging guilt or, you know, <laughs> the, uh, the ideals of power <laughs> and responsibility that uh, Ben would instill in him. Um, didn't dig it. I, I was very excited to get it at the time, um, but... Uh, were you familiar really, with Bag's work when you got it at the time? Or? A, a bit. Yeah. I, I read some hate, and uh, 
he fits there. Uh, yeah. I didn't think he fit on a, in uh, in Marvel. You know, you see you um, see that around this time with a few things, partly because, like you say, Mar- Marvel's extending olive branches, but DC also yeah. has been, you know, not recalcitrant to use these underground artists, and you see that they don't really work a lot of times on these mainstream comics. You know, they are yeah, because doing... like they did. DC did like Paul Pope was mm. on some stuff, and that was kind of not that great. It didn't really work out for them. Yeah, it's uh, yeah funny. Um, Beg would do a, a, an issue of a, a, a book called Sweatshop, which was published by DC in uh, 2003. Um, unlike early issues of Hate, this uh, this was done with the help of an art team. Uh, Sweatshop, ironically, is about a cartoonist who hits a big. Stories series is very short lived, and it only made it six issues. Uh, from 2005 to 2007, he uh, produced Apocalypse Nerd through Dark Horse Comics. Went six issues about two guys trying to make it in the post-apocalyptic Pacific Northwest. Uh, beginning in 2009, he uh, began contributing cartoons to science and technology periodical Discovery Magazine. Uh, an original graphic novel titled Other Lives was published by Vertigo in 2010. Uh, in 2013, he produced Woman Rebel through Drawn and Quarterly about birth control ag- advocate Margaret Sanger. Uh, he currently lives in Seattle, Washington, and uh, he doesn't stop for work. I mean, I'm pretty sure he can write his own ticket at this yeah. point. Uh, he's he's won uh, several awards, and he's been nominated for Eisner's many, many times. Um, he won uh, the 1991 Harvey Award for Best Cartoonist. He won the 1991 Harvey Award for Best New Series. Uh, and he's been nominated for various Harvey Awards in 1990, 91, 92, 93, 94, 95, 96, 97, 98, and 99. Wow, the, the whole 90s. Good job. The whole 90s. He swept. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, he was presented with an Inkbot Award at the San Diego Comic-Con International in 2010. Uh, nominated for uh, the Will, Not- Will Eisner Comic Industry Award several times in 91. Uh, nominee for Best Writer and Artist. 92. Nominee Best Writer. 93. Nominee Best Writer, 93. Nominee Best Writer and Artist, <laughs> sure. 95. Uh, nominee for Best Colorist. Um, now, these were all for his work on Hate. Um, in 2010, he got the Will Eisner Comic Industry Award, a nominee for Best Humor Publication. It's for uh, Everybody is Stupid Except for Me and All Other Astute Observations, which came out by Fantagraphics. It's uh, basically a libertarian manifesto in comics form. Yeah. Um, you ever read was, that? Uh, I'm kind of interested I in that, too. Yeah, I have like, not. I, that, that, that actually piqued my interest a bit. Yeah, I'd like to see it. Yeah, uh, he was uh, the recipient of a 2014 United States Artist Award and is now a Rockefeller Fellow for Literature. Um, Weirdo Comics would also showcase some of the earliest work for Ace Backwards, Daniel Close, Debbie Dreschler, Alan and Drew Friedman, and... Uh, God, just so many. Dozens, dozens of people uh, that yeah. have, and, and you know the, so I mean these people had very small, so you know Peter Beggs, a guy doing punk rock comics in the '70s, and now he's yeah. a Rockefeller Fellow for literature. Uh, <laughs> it just goes to it, it. just shows how different the trajectory is for underground comics, because then you get a guy like I don't know. I'm just I'm really just going to pick a name out, but you know like Ethan Van Skyver, a very well respected. Comics artist, you know, he does Green Lantern, been drawing for DC and comics for years, but he's not recognized outside of, no one knows who he is outside of comics, you know what I mean? But this, the underground comics somehow gives you a venue where you can win, you know, weird awards, (laughs) sort of affect larger culture, which, you know, might be its own discussion about how people perceive comics, but uh, 
all these people. I mean, this, this is really what, what we're trying to illustrate is the trajectory from like drawing crude comics of a skewered penis in your yes. living room and then you're, you know, the art director of the New Yorker later in life and, or mm -hmm. whatever it is. You know, you start, you start, you know, you're Alien Kaminsky drawing crude pictures about you on the toilet and then uh, you get older and you're still drawing crude pictures about yourself on the toilet. So, there you go. But, 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 you know, you're making a living at it and, and you, you know, people know your work. So it's, uh, it, it really is interesting to me. You know, underground comics is, is a part of comics that, maybe because it's so underground, but it doesn't really get illuminated with the rest of the comics history, and that's why yeah. I really wanted to get into this. But we're going to wrap up on our good pal Harvey Picar right here. Now, uh, American Splendor was performed as a play in Lancaster, Pennsylvania in 1985. On May 20th, 1986, Harvey Picar would appear for the first time on Late Night with David Letterman to promote the first American Splendor trade. Uh, I saw this, actually... As an really? Era. Oh yeah. Uh, he would. I. I was a. My brother and I were big Letterman fans in the eighties. Mm. He would appear on the show six times. Uh, the last one being in nineteen ninety three to promote another trade collection that I dropped the name of for some reason. Um, Picar had been increasingly critical of NBC's parent company General Electric and especially of their uh, involvement in military, um, you know, contracts and building planes and missiles and stuff and of Dave's show business attitude in general, but on August 31st, 1988, he got into a public argument with Letterman while taping and was told he would not be asked back on the show, which he was, like I said, in 1993, <laughs> but by then, perhaps enough water had passed under the bridge and Dave was in his last days at NBC anyway. And uh, I, I saw them fight. I don't know if I ever saw this last one in 88, but I do remember one where he came on with a T-shirt that said, Oh, I don't know. GE is unfair to labor or something like that, and he just wouldn't shut up about really? GE the whole time. Oh, you, I'd be surprised you couldn't find it on YouTube. I was gonna say that's got to be on YouTube um, somewhere. And he actually—I remember he wrote about it in American Splendor. But I remember my brother and I were, and again, my father was getting American Splendor, so we uh, we all had hmm. this connection with it. Uh, it was it was definitely something cool to see because that it wasn't yeah. a live show, but they still you know showed it. Still aired it. Wow. Now in '87, American this the play American Splendor is performed in Washington D.C. And that same year, he won an American Book Award for his second trade collection, More American Splendor, published by Doubleday. Again, like I say, he's what these people they win awards outside of uh, the ink pot and the Eisners. Yeah. Um, Picard's stars continued to rise in its rather academic way, and in November 1991, he was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. After a brutal short course of chemotherapy, the cancer goes into remission, and Harvey attends San Diego Comic Con in 1992 to promote another trade collection, as well as a new, an all-new original graphic novel called Our Cancer Year. This is written by Harvey and his wife, Wendy, and it's no surprise it's about the year Harvey had cancer. Uh, in the late 90s, Harvey published several autobiographical comics through Dark, Dark Horse. In 2001, Harvey retires from the Veterans Hospital. That same year, his cancer returns. Uh, then the American Splendor film, which I think a lot of people are familiar with, directed by Sherry Spring-Berman and starring Paul Giamatti as Harvey Picar, as well as Harvey Picar as Harvey Picar. you got to see the movie to understand yeah. what I mean. But uh, that debuted in 2003 to rave reviews and won several independent film awards, including Best Picture of 2003, given out by both the Los Angeles Film Critics Association and the National Society of Film Critics. That's, you know, pretty impressive. It's a big deal. 2004, uh, Harvey publishes Our Movie Year, which, well, I think you can guess the content of what that was about. 
In 2005, Harvey Picar and Dean Haspiel published The Quitter through Vertigo. This is probably the best distribution of any of his work has gotten, ever. In 2007, Vertigo would publish two American Splendor four-issue miniseries by Picar, which were collected under the names Another Day in 2007 and Another Dollar in 2009, respectively. Uh, that year, he releases Macedonia, co-written with Heather Robinson and drawn by Ed Piscor. And, you know, we wish we could say that this was a complete list of his work, but it ain't even close. Uh, he wrote articles, forwards, jazz reviews, and a whole bunch of nonfiction prose that, well, not comics, uh, and, you know, therefore, outside the general purview of this podcast, should still be included with his other accomplishments, as well as, you know, to help paint a portrait of an exceedingly busy man in his later years. Yeah, I think somewhere there's an alternate that's a jazz podcast that's talking about Harvey Picar and going through his... I mean, he wrote so much stuff about jazz, yeah. and he had such a huge collection. He's, like, super respected in that world, and they're probably just like, and he also did comics. <laughs> and he wrote some stuff that people drew. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh... On, Je on July 12, 2010, uh, Wendy would find Harvey dead in their Cleveland Heights home. Uh, by October, the county coroner's uh, office determined the cause of death was an overdose of barbiturates. Uh, he had found out that he had cancer for a third time oh. and uh, you know, probably couldn't deal with the recovery again. Uh, there was no note left. and uh, But, I mean, after three bouts of cancer, I mean, if... Yeah, I can, um, I can definitely, and you know, he was not a young man, and you know, no. not, not leaving a note that really is the kind of guy he was, you know. I mean, it fit, yeah, it fits the MO. Le leave quietly and quickly, you know, like let's yes. not linger on. Let's not linger, yeah. Uh, one of his quotes graced his headstone. It uh, says, uh, life is about women, gigs, and being creative. Um, some work co-authored with his wife has been released posthumously, uh, and uh, she and their adopted daughter, Danielle, are writing a biography of uh, Picar with no release date yet given. Um, so on that sad note, uh, that's it. Yeah. You know, the, the, the comics boom turned to a bust, and dozens of small press shops shut down. Marvel Comics would declare bankruptcy. Comic books almost became a footnote in history, if not for the Iron Wills of a few select people and some fools like us. Um, <laughs> Who supported those people. <laughs> yes. Now, so underground comics are done, they're just done for, right? Yeah, Surely there that's could be it. no comparison today. Uh, and we got a market, you know, essentially controlled by that one distributor, Diamond. Um, if you think so, you'd be wrong, uh, as we will discuss next episode. Uh, and as well as mainstream companies seeking out uh, to meet the underground market in their own way with some interesting results. Uh, and we'll also find out whatever happened to that lovable Crumb family anyway. Uh, this will <laughs> probably, probably be our concluding chapter next time, so be sure not to miss it. Yep, and that will air in a couple of weeks. But, uh, you know, if you want to give us a more write to us, talk to us about that whole thing. We, we were talking about how underground comics had shifted to autobiographical content and sort of the definition changed. Or if you want to talk to us about anything else or just write to yeah. us because you... I uh, think we're nice. We're at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. We are nice, too. And we try to be nice. Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Reggie Reggie. Nowadays Comics. And uh, every single day, you should go check out Chris is on infiniteearth.blogspot.com. That's your, Chris's personal blog where he reviews a, a DC comic, really from any point, uh, of, any, of any stripe, um, every single day. And it's a, a very funny stuff, and he's got... Pictures and ads, and it's very insightful. You know, it's it's hard to. I, I don't. Sometimes I I wonder uh, if I like the recap or if I like the 
thing at the end, you know, you kind of <laughs> split into two. You do like kind of a, a recap, and then you do kind of a breakdown at the end. And yeah, uh, the breakdown is where the insightful stuff comes in, and uh, it's always worth reading. And I recommend everyone go check that out. But uh, I think that's all we got for him this week. Do you uh, have anything else for him, Chris? I I think we are. I think we are good for now. Well, until next week, then I want you to keep it weird autobiographically. Thank you.